want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Here and Clear podcast, where we discuss seeing and sharing Jesus from all the scriptures. Uh, and we're continuing this week to hear from uh, the conference we held in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we had a Christ Here and Clear conference there where we were thinking about uh, Christ in the wisdom literature. Uh, we've heard from uh, my dad as he talked about Christ in the Song of Solomon. We've heard from my brother John uh, as he talked about Christ in Proverbs. We've heard from Juan Sanchez where he talked about Christ in Job. Uh, and today on the podcast, uh, we're going to hear from Josh Redberg. Uh, Josh talked at this conference about how we can make Christ clear from the Scriptures. In fact, the title of his talk was Preaching Like Jesus, uh, and so thinking through how do you uh, take what, you know, a Christocentric hermeneutic, preach in that way, teach in that way, even just share Jesus in that way, and then make it clear for the hearers. And so uh, you'll be edified by the content, uh, and we very much appreciate you listening to the christ Center and Clear podcast. How many of you are golfers? Okay, couple. Whenever I'm asked that question, if you're like me, your your mind instantly goes to your last bad round, and then you're like, I don't know if I'd call myself a golfer. I like to golf. I got to golf when I graduated from college, so something to sort of scratch the competitive itch. And so when I got into it, I didn't have kids yet, so I had time to do it, and you know, started golfing, started watching it, started reading magazines, and just enjoyed playing it. And then one day, I went out, and everything had fallen apart. Um, I could barely make contact with the ball, even though the ball wasn't moving. Uh, my golf swing felt like a foreign language, and I did not have the gift of interpretation. And so I, I decided to sign up for a lesson. And so I went to the lesson, and the, the instructor had me, had me warm up and take some swings. And then he, this was, this was long before iPhone days, he took out a video camera and he recorded my swing. And so he hooked up to his cam camera and he showed me my golf swing on video. And it was one of the most disturbing things I had ever witnessed. So in my mind, I swung like the guys I watched on TV, but on the video, I swung like the overweight, uncoordinated golfers on the range around me for some reason. If that wasn't bad enough, what he did next was even worse. He took my swing, and he took Tiger Woods' swing, and he went split screen. And he put them in sync, and he compared me to Tiger Woods. And I'll be honest, it barely looked like the same sport. <laughs> and so, but but he, what he did after that was actually, in spite of all, I really I wanted to quit golf halfway through the lesson. Be like, you know what? This was not worth my time or your time. Um, but what he did is he stopped the swings a couple different places, and then he said, well, let me just show you something here. See, this is something he's doing that you're not doing. Here's something he's doing that's not doing. And then he took me out on the range, and we started working on those things, and I did not turn into Tiger Woods overnight, still waiting for that to happen. But I, I did start to see some improvement, and it happened because I, I was patterning my swing after Tiger's. tigers. And so, so far today, what we've really focused on is the content of our preaching. Right? We were to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I want to move in this session beyond that, just the content of our preaching to the manner in which we preach. And so what I want to do is look at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus preached. And so, so we see that he's, uh, he's not only the subject of our preaching, he's the example for our preaching. Dr. Aiken mentioned this in the first thing, that, that some say we shouldn't preach like Jesus. 
And I don't have a rich theological argument other to say like, huh? Like, I, I think we, we should. And so I think there's value in us comparing our preaching to what the Lord did, right? Christ-centered and clear. That's our goal. We want to see Christ in all of Scripture so that we can share Christ in all of Scripture. So how does Jesus communicate? What's it mean to preach like Christ? So turn with me to Matthew 5. We're going to just look at some aspects of it. This isn't going to be anything exhaustive on the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to do for you what, what the golf instructor did for me, just to point out a few details that we can emulate as we communicate God's Word. So there are some notes. If you can get some, um, they're pretty basic. But if that helps, a place to write some things down. Here's the, here's the first thing, first detail. Jesus connects the Scripture to his redemptive work through patterns, quotations, and illusions. He connects the scripture to his redemptive work through patterns, quotations, and illusions. So, I mean, how does Jesus understand the Bible? When I get asked that question, I think, like you all think, Luke 24, right? That Jesus talks there about the, the three divisions of the Old Testament, and he says, he, he teaches the disciples from all of them how it, how it leads to him. Or maybe, maybe John 5, where he's talking to the, with the Pharisees, and he says, your problem is you're searching the scripture, looking for life but you, you ignore me, and therefore you don't understand what Moses taught. But I think there's a key passage here in Matthew 5 where Jesus talks about the Scripture. So look at verse 17. Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So the law with all of its covenants, curses, and promises leads to Jesus. The law is the starting line and Jesus is the checkered flag. Notice he doesn't unhitch himself or his followers from the Old Testament scriptures. Rather, he looks to them to provide the necessary information to understand who he is and what he's doing. Uh, you can't understand the fulfillment if you don't understand the promise. The climactic scene of a movie makes no sense if you haven't watched the story unfold, unless it's a Hallmark holiday movie, then you can pretty much figure it out. So in verse 18, Jesus says he clarifies the entire, that the entire law is fulfilled in his person and work. And so that means we don't just see Jesus in a few random prophetic passages that are read during the annual Christmas pageant. All of it works together to prepare God's people for his arrival and all that has value because of the way it helps us know him. Apart from a Christ-centered reading of the text, it's almost impossible to see current value in sections of the Old Testament. I think Juan showed us that from Leviticus 11 a few moments ago. Right, if you relegate the Old Testament to a previous age that's simply long gone, and you don't see it as preparation for the coming of Christ and a key to understanding him now, then so much of it becomes functionally irrelevant. It's no more useful to your life than a box of old baseball cards in your attic, and probably far less interesting. So we see this clearly in the way Jesus ends his sermon. I want you to think about this and actually think about maybe the connection to what some of we've been talking about with the book of Proverbs, that Jesus ends his sermon with the parable of the wise man and the foolish man, which directs our thinking to the book of Proverbs, right? As those who are familiar with our Bibles, we would start to think through wise man, foolish man, this contrast, what we've been thinking about in Proverbs. So what separates the wise man from the foolish man in Jesus' story? Well, the difference is what they do with his teaching. Wisdom is demonstrated by listening to the words of Jesus and building your life on his words. 
How does the Old Testament talk about wisdom? Well, it also connects wisdom to the Word of God. The wise man listens and builds his life on the Word of God. And so here Jesus is equating his words with God's words, not replacing one with the other, but tying them together. And so like the, the way the, the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in chapter 7, he's saying, I'm the ongoing revelation of God. And so the way of wisdom, and therefore putting our sort of Proverbs thinking on, the way to life instead of destruction is through the teaching of Jesus, particularly the teaching about how he is accomplishing all that God promised in the past. The teaching of Jesus about how he's the fulfillment of what God wrote. Jesus' teaching, he summarizes his own teaching, Mark, as the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And so here you could say Jesus is saying, build your life on the good news that I came to fulfill all of God's promises. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, throughout the Gospels, as Jesus teaches, he consistently connects the Old Testament scriptures to his work of redemption. He shows that how he is bringing the words of God to fulfillment. And how does he do that? I think there are a lot of ways, if you've read Grudanus, he has seven different ways, but just in this sermon, like there are three ways I see that he uses patterns, quotations, and allusions. I, one of the things I like to do is to woodwork, and so over the years as I've done that, my house is filled up with projects I've made, some tables and bookcases, cabinets, shelves, trays, other various things. And I'm being honest here, none of the designs are original to me. Not even a little. Each one was inspired by something else. Maybe a YouTube video, a great source for ideas for woodworking is YouTube. I don't know how you did it before then. Maybe it's a piece from a store. I've literally been in Ikea and said, I can build that, and measured it in there. And they're looking at me strange, just want to see if it fits. <laughs> and then gone home and build it for three times as much. <laughs> but it's still together. Right, so I think if you visited my house, you would... You know, like we, and I, we were, I was showing you around with, I see all these things I built that I could point out to you. You might not see it, but I could point out to you how this, this particular piece is similar to something that inspired it. That it, this thing I built was patterned after something I had seen before. And, and I, this is what happens as we study the Bible. I mean, we, we've seen it, right, this morning, is how... There, there are patterns that are repeated, how a current event is patterned after something we've seen before. And these, these patterns ultimately prepare us for the coming of Jesus to understand his person and his work. And at, at first glance, like looking at that bookcase, you, you might not see the pattern, but then when someone shows it to you, all of a sudden you're like, yes, there it is. It's a careful study that brings it out. So think about the Sermon on the Mount. What happens prior to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus is taken to Egypt. Young Jewish boys are executed by order of an angry king. Jesus returns to Israel. He crosses the Jordan River with supernatural signs. He spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted to rebel against God because of hunger. And when chapter 5 opens, Jesus is leading a crowd up a mountain and teaching them how to receive the blessing of God. We should recognize a pattern. Jesus is connecting himself with Moses through a pattern of exodus, exile, and law-giving, that he is therefore creating a new covenant people redeemed by his work and governed by his word. But, but noticing patterns is a key way to connect the Old Testament scripture to the redemptive work of God. So I'm preaching through the book of Daniel right now. 
And I've just been amazed going through there at the patterns that point ahead to Jesus. For instance, the story of Daniel mirrors the story of Joseph. And they both prepare us for the suffering and exaltation of the Messiah. So like Daniel, Joseph is, he's taken from his home. Like Daniel, he rises to a position of great influence without compromising his identity as a follower of God. Both obey God's law and suffer because of it. Both are unjustly accused. Both are thrown into a pit to die, but come out of the pit alive. And Joseph's story ends with the exodus, leaving captivity for the promised land. And Daniel's story ends the same way. And so thinking about those patterns, then I think helps us interpret something like when Jesus says on the Emmaus Road, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he isn't simply talking about Isaiah 53 there. He's saying, haven't you seen the pattern? Like, haven't, haven't you noticed this? Why, why do you think this kept happening? So he uses patterns. Jesus also uses direct quotations from the Old Testament, at least eight of them in the sermon. And then he uses, he explains them in relation to himself and his work. For instance, Jesus puts the words of Psalm 6-8 into his mouth. If you look at chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus is quoting there Psalm 6-8. And it's a warning to all who would enter the kingdom apart from him, that he will tell them, depart from me, you lawbreakers. And so you have in the Psalm 6-8, the, the psalmist is longing for justice and we see this just as Jesus says is fulfilled when Jesus judges himself, the wicked and the faithless. And if we go beyond quotations, we can go to sort of indirect quotations like Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I would call this an interpreted quotation because it takes the promise given to faithful Israelites of rest in the land, Psalm 37, and expands it to the whole earth for those who are part of the new covenant community created by Jesus. Beyond patterns and quotations, we see something less definable. Like my word for it is allusions. Not illusions, but allusions. An illusion is a misleading impression, but an allusion is an indirect reference. Now, I grew up in a type of fundamentalist background that would say all allusions are illusions, but I think that undermines both the beauty and the brilliance of God's word. I want you to think about that for a second. Ignoring the illusions undermines the beauty and brilliance of God's word. In other words, we give far more credit to great works of literature than we do to God's word when we ignore the illusions. And it also ignores, more importantly, the example of Jesus and the apostles. That allusions to the coming redemptive work of Christ are present throughout scripture. They're often subtle and frankly, they, they require having seen the end of the story to recognize them in earlier parts. How many of you watched the movie Sixth Sense for the second time? Yeah. One. Me too. Yeah. So what happens when you watch the second time? All of these things you did not see before, you know, you recognize because all these subtle details that actually make it a brilliant story because you know the dramatic conclusion. I'm not going to spoil it for if you haven't watched it in the last 23 years. I should? They're dead. Sorry. <laughs> But, but see, the more, I think the more we see and understand Jesus, the more we start to pick up on these subtle allusion, allusions in the text. So think about this. Jesus opens this sermon by saying, blessed are. And he keeps repeating this, blessed are. And these words allude to the opening of the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man. So Psalms opens this two-part psalm 
unveils the, the key to a life of blessing, and it says, you build your life on the Word of God, Psalm 1, and you take refuge in the Son of God, Psalm 2. Okay, build your life on the Word of God, take refuge in the Son of God. And so the Sermon on the Mount now begins with this allusion to Psalm 1 and 2, building and taking refuge. And then it ends, the, the Sermon on the Mount does, by combining that teaching into a metaphor about finding refuge from the final storm by building your life on the teaching of the Son of God. And so these allusions connect the Psalms to the work of Jesus. So Brian Chapel calls these allusions glimmers of grace. Here, here's what he writes. He says, grace may just glimmer in many Old Testament passages before it blazes in the New Testament. And I really like that image because as, as those who study God's word, we are like those who are digging, right? We're digging into the ground, and it's hard work breaking up the soil, and we're digging for this treasure. And all the time, he's saying, you're keeping your eyes open as you dig, and all of a sudden, you'll be digging, and you'll see this glimmer. It catches your eye, and you explore it further, and it often shows you more of the beauty and wonder of God's work in Jesus Christ. So a a couple months ago, I was preaching in Daniel 2, and I, I came across a statement by the Chaldean wise men. So Nebuchadnezzar says to them, he says, not only do you have to interpret my dream, you have to tell me my dream. And they, of course, they're like, this is impossible. And he's like, well, I don't care if it's impossible. You're going to do it. You're going to die. And then they say to him, they say, the only one who could possibly do that is a God. And they say this in Daniel 2, verse 11, but gods don't dwell with mortals. Gods don't dwell with mortals. I started glimmering when I started glimmering when that happened. So they're saying, in essence, can you imagine <laughs> this would never happen? That's why we can't give you an answer. Can you imagine if a God actually dwelt with mortals? In other words, what Jesus Christ did on that first Christmas morning is utterly conceivable to a group of Chaldean wise men. And yet somehow in the beauty of God's plan, there will be a group of Chaldean wise men who one day journey to Bethlehem. Why? They're coming to worship the God who dwells with mortals. Right? It's a glimmer. It's an illusion. It's a subtle reference to God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus surfaces these illusions throughout his teaching. In fact, sometimes he does in such a way that we're like, wait, can that really be the case? I mean, who hasn't said that when Paul says Jesus was the rock? And you're like, what? Right? It's this illusion. And we have to think and dig and study and be so familiar with Jesus that it starts to make sense. So if you're to preach like Christ, you must connect the scripture to his redemptive work. Here's the second thing. If Jesus connects the scripture to everyday life through illustrations and analogies. So how many illustrations and analogies? I'm using those generically. Like you can go to Brooks on preaching and they'll, they'll define them very specifically. I'm using them this sort of this way. Illustrations, really general. Maybe more specific like life situations. Analogies. Figures of speech. doesn't have to be a precise analogy, just sort of a figure of speech. How many do you think are in the Sermon on the Mount? I I bet if we all took time and counted, we'd all probably come up with different numbers because there's so many you don't always know where one begins and one ends. By my count, 19 illustrations and 17 analogies. Three chapters, 38 illustrations of some form. One book on preaching claims that 75% of all of Jesus' recorded preaching is illustrative in nature. And my guess is that when you think about the most famous of Jesus' teachings, that you either think about an illustration like the prodigal son or an analogy 
like the salt of the earth. Now, I think in circles, at least circles I've been part of, that take expository preaching seriously, illustrations and analogies are often looked at somewhat negatively. There are some, some examples of, of those preachers in circles that take expository preaching seriously that just simply refuse to use them. Why is that? Why is this looked at so negatively? I think one reason is because we've witnessed the abuse of them. So I grew up in a circle where we had traveling evangelists, and they were usually fantastic storytellers. And most of the time, those stories overshadowed the scriptures. They were highly emotional. They were dangerously manipulative, often ridiculous, even unbelievable at times. And it's the type of preaching you'd sit through, and if you were serious about the Bible, you'd like, I never want to do that. I remember one particular evangelist coming through and claimed he had the record for the longest punt in California State high school football history. And he went into this long, elaborate story about he kicked it up in the, the trade winds, I think he said, were blowing off of the Pacific Ocean. Ben, do you remember this? Jet stream, that's what it was, was blowing off the Pacific Ocean. And he kicked it, he, I, I'm pretty sure this is, he punted it from the one, and it went on the one, and he said it was a 99-yard punt. It's a 98-yard punt. So I'm not sure how accurate the story was. Right? But it was this long, elaborate thing. I have no idea what, it had nothing to do with anything he said. And so you're like, I, I don't want to do that. But I think there's a second reason many of my pastor friends are less keen on illustrations. There's a thing they mentioned in hushed voices around Chick-fil-A. It's that coming up with quality illustrations and analogies is hard work. Now, we, we don't say that. We say things like, well, I'm not good at it. I have heard that at least a dozen times. I'm not good at it. Like, it just doesn't come naturally. I'm not creative. These are some of the excuses we make for not taking time to prepare illustrations and analogies. Listen, all of preaching is hard work. Why do you get out of some of it? Because it's hard. Like, we work hard at things that matter. So here's what convinced me of the importance of, of incorporating illustrations and analogies into preaching and teaching. So I remember one day, I don't remember what I was doing, but I was thinking about pastoral ministry, and I was thinking about Paul's encouragement to Timothy and in his final letter, near the end of the letter, he explains to his son in the faith what it means to be a faithful man of God, a spiritual leader. And this is what he says, Timothy, pastors are soldiers, they're athletes, and they're farmers. And then his next verse is, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Like, that's it. He says, just think about these three pictures, and you'll figure it out from there you'll figure out what you're supposed to do. Like, it wasn't a long, elaborate speech. He says, let me just give you sort of three pictures. Then you got it. So, so using illustration analogies is not only biblically allowed, I would argue it's the biblical pattern. What are some of the benefits of good illustrations? Why, why are these used? Well, one is they aid understanding. They aid understanding. We say a picture is worth, what? A thousand words. Some of our sermons would probably be a lot better with a thousand less words and a couple more pictures. I was a kid, when I was a kid, my, we had these books um, in our house called Children's Illustrated Classics. And they were these simplified versions of classic stories and every other page was a picture. And I loved those books. I read through them a number of times. I never would have understand those understood those stories in their regular forms, but these illustrations made understanding possible, right? So we, we just sort of intuitively understand the value of illustrations. And, and one of the reasons this is so helpful is because when illustrations bypass the limits that are often imposed by differences in vocabulary. Here, here's what I mean. 
a month or so ago, I had a pastor friend visit us from Scotland. A wonderful Scottish brother who had n- knew nothing about American football. And so one of my goals was to educate him on American football. In fact, we took him to an NC State football game. It's only barely American football, but I figured it was still a good experience for him. But before we went to the game, we actually sat down. It was an evening game, so Saturday we sat down and we watched some football together. And we were just talking about it a little bit. And at one point, I said, um, I said something about the center. And he just sort of looks at me. That look like, well, I don't, what, do you, what do you mean? And so I said, well, he's the guy who snaps the ball to the quarterback. He looked at me, and I realized the only word he understood in that sentence was ball. So then I said, well, he's the guy who hikes it. Well, if you look at the line of scrimmage, and finally I said, he's the guy who does this. So I got my hand between my legs, and I was like, oh, okay, that guy. Right? Like, there's this sense in which when we're only just, when we're only communicating with sort of declarative sentences, when we're only explaining things, we're limited by the, the differences in vocabulary and experience. So when Jesus wants to describe the longing we should have for righteousness, he describes it here in chapter 5, verse 6 as hunger and thirst. We all, we all get that. Chapter 5, to help us understand the distinctiveness of his people, he says, you are salt and light. Think about how many books have been written simply because Jesus says you are to be a city set on a hill. That has, that has really informed Christian engagement with culture, that phrase for 2,000 years. So much truth packed into a small analogy. Hypocrisy is a wooden beam in your eye and a splinter in your neighbor's. Evil deeds are rotten fruit. False prophets are hungry wolves. And the exclusivity of Christianity is a narrow gate. How should you handle those who relentlessly persecute you? Don't cast your pearls before swine. All of those come from the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus illustrates to aid understanding. He also illustrates, I think, to engage affections. So many of Jesus' illustrations, they bring the whole person into the truth so that the whole person engages with the truth. So explanations target the head. Illustrations target both the head and the heart. Good illustrations help us feel what should be felt so that we can understand what should be understood. So so think about how Jesus does this in chapter 6. So he's contrasting true prayer and true giving and true fasting with hypocritical versions of all those. So look at Matthew 6, verse 2. Jesus says, so whenever you go to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you. Can you almost hear the trumpet sounding? As the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets, to be applauded by people, can you hear the clapping? Can you feel the pride swell up in you as cheers ring out? Or in verse 5, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by people. Can you see them standing there? Can you picture their faces? Can you almost hear what they're saying? Can you tell how people are responding to them? Or in verse 16, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Can you see them? So that their fasting is obvious to people, but when you put oil on your head, can you almost feel it running through your hair? Wash your face. Well, that's refreshing. Why? So that your fasting isn't obvious to others. See, the illustrations draw us in so that we don't simply understand what is right and wrong. We feel what is right and wrong. Why don't you think about the story of the prodigal son? What does that story do to you? Not, not what does it teach you? What does it do to you? Yes, 
It teaches us about God's love. And more than that, it convinces us and assures us. It comforts us. It pleads with us to come home if we're lost. It works on our heart, mind, and will simultaneously. So illustrations engage affections. And illustrations demonstrate relevance. So I think the question that is most often asked in the mind and heart of those sitting in a pew on Sunday is not, is this true? I think the question is, does this matter? Does this matter in my life? What difference does it make? So I have three teenage sons, and this is the question they wrestle with. I don't think any of them, they grew up in a home. I think they're all like, yeah, this is true. But I don't know that they really think it matters. Or at least they're wrestling with whether or not it matters. So when Jesus uses these analogies and illustrations that come from the lives of those listening, he's grounding the truth in their everyday existence. This is a subtle but powerful way to show them the relevance of the message. In his book on preaching, John Killinger talks about illustrations. and He says, the best ones are stories from men's and women's experiences, from children's experiences, narrated by the persons they happen to, shared by the preacher. There's a warmth about them that makes them very appealing. They give an honest ring to the gospel that does not come from anything else. They make the gospel seem real, touchable, truly incarnate. Now, uh, one practical way to do this, I think, is to ask yourself, and when you're looking to illustrate something, who in my church is doing this particularly well? And then use them as a positive illustration in the sermon. Because as much as people love to hear about William Carey and Lottie Moon, they can seem untouchable. But when Bill or Betty, as members of your church, they faithfully apply scripture, then everyone sees and feels the relevance of it. So let me give you just three quick tips for how, improving how you illustrate if you find it hard work. We all do. But here's some tips. First, after you finish writing your sermon, look for long stretches of explanation and replace some of it with an illustration or an analogy. Like maybe you can color code it. Whatever the system you want to use is, like is one of the final steps in your sermon writing process, just look at it and say, where do I just talk for a long stretch? And let's be honest, if you preach, you, you do this some. Like this is, we've, this is why we're good talkers. So we just talk paragraph after paragraph of explanation, explanation, explanation. Look for those and say, okay, how can I, how can I illustrate something there? How can, I better, how can I better teach this through an illustration or analogy? Second, when you preach narrative, rely less on illustrations and more on analogies. In other words, the text is a story, so you don't necessarily need a lot of other stories, but sprinkle analogies throughout your explanation. Don't keep saying he became angry. He was upset. Like, add some life. Well, how angry was he? He was angrier than an Ohio State fan last Saturday when Michigan whooped him. <laughs> Amen, Ben Wright? That was for you. Oh, okay. He was more upset than a toddler whose balloon blew away in the wind. Right? Help people visualize what you say. Draw them in. Then third, work on them. Work on analogies. Anyone can do them. So when I've, when I've taught a class on preaching at different times, I, I've, I always do this exercise where we go, I go to a whiteboard and I do something like, love is blank. And I say, you have three minutes to come up with an analogy. So we have a classroom, and honestly, within three minutes, at least half the class has come up with a pretty decent one. And there's always ones I never have heard of, never would have thought of. Or we can do something else, like hypocrisy is like blank. Like, people can do it. You can do it. It just takes some time and some effort and some thought. If you have staff or you have other elders or you have a small group, do it with them. 
You're struggling, like, man, I'm really struggling to find an analogy for this. Send out an email to some friends and say, like, okay, here, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy for this. Here's what I got. They're terrible so far, but here's what I got. Right? It just takes effort. So Jesus first connects the scripture to his redemptive work, then he connects it to everyday life through illustrations and analogies. And then third, Jesus connects the scripture to heart motivations through multi-layered application. Multi-layered application. So applying the teaching of scripture to, in a Christ-centered way is not always as easy as it sounds. I think Juan was getting to this earlier, talking about, you have this, right? You have the, the nature of application, is, there's some level of self-focus. And so since we're directing the eyes and attention of those listening to their own lives, and so we're trying to help them see how this teaching shapes their daily choices, it's, it's easy sometimes to do this. We spend the bulk of our time looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus, and then we take this hard left turn into application. We're like, oh, we looked at Jesus, now let's look at our lives. And we, we fail to make the connection explicit. And I think this is why some are like, they just are like, ah, they don't really do application because they're, they're fr- afraid of moralism. They're afraid of sort of this hard left turn and so they just don't do it. And so here's what they do well is they every week rehearse the beautiful gospel story from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem. And they, they, yet they never connect the story with the sort of daily sin struggles of their people. I think it's the difference between a, a painting and a window, right? They, every week they get up and they paint this beautiful portrait of Christ's redeeming work on the cross, right? They use every color, finest details. They, they, they stand before the congregation and they sort of tirelessly paint this beautiful portrait of redemption. You can, if you look closely, you see like little serpents with crushed heads woven into all the different parts of the painting. There's the tree of life is just hinted at in different scenes. And, and, and it's all so beautiful that you have the listener who's standing there and he's, he's wishing that this portrait could be a window where he could actually step into it. But, but it just sort of feels like this thing to be admired. It has nothing to do with his life. And our, our job as those who teach with the Bible is we actually have to show them, no, this is, There's a window, there's a doorway you get to step through, and this story is the story that gives shape to your life. That we don't admire the work of Jesus like a piece of art, that it's the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of righteousness, the possibility of holy living is what we're supposed to live ourselves in. And so I I think Jesus does this by going three layers deep on application. So here's what I mean. The first layer is action. This answers the question, what? Like, what are we supposed to do? And so, as, as preachers, we do this often by telling people to stop it or to start it, right? Stop lying. Start telling the truth. Stop swearing. Start speaking words of encouragement. Stop lusting. Start living a holy life. This, let's just, this is the part we're really good at. We're good at telling people what to do. It's probably why you became a pastor. Somebody one day heard you tell people what to do, and you're like, you're good at that. You should do it every Sunday. And th- th- listen, we need to do this. We, like, it would, be, it would be irresponsible of us not to do this, right? What does Apostle Paul tell Timothy? He says, preach the word. Then he, he says, this is what I mean. Correct, rebuke, encourage. You can't correct, rebuke, and encourage without outlining some specific actions. So if I'm correcting my son's bad lawn mowing, which if you ever teach a child to mow a lawn, that's what you do for the first year is you're like, you take them out there and you say, see that strip that's like knee high, how did you miss that, right? I, I've got to go there and say, here's exactly what you're doing wrong and here's what you need to start doing in order to correct it. And so, so part of biblical teaching certainly is, is answering the question, well, what are we supposed to do? Okay, but the application can't stop there. Otherwise, we're just, we're creating, we're encouraging self-righteousness. We're 
We're creating these modern-day Pharisees, people trying to do right through their own effort and willpower. And so, but we start there. What are we supposed to do? But we've got to go deeper than that. Here's layer two is occasion. Here's where we answer the questions, well, where and when? And so as pastors, we serve our people by helping them think deeply about the circumstances of their life and how they can obey the imperatives of Scripture. So we go beyond what? Like stop lying and we say where and when. Stop lying on your expense report at work. Stop lying to your parents when you get caught. Stop spreading fake news on Facebook. And so what we're doing is saying, like, we're, we're helping them see how obedience to Christ looks in the day-to-day of their lives. Now, you understand what this requires. This requires pastors, actual pastors who actually know the people. And when we do this, when we do this type of application, here's what we're doing. We're demonstrating simultaneously care for our flock and confidence in the Word of God. And so we're assuring them that these commands of Scripture are not these dusty relics, but they are divine imperatives. And the weight of the world, the word falls on them as they see its relevance in the circumstances of their life and those around them. And so we don't just say start and stop. We say, here's what that might look like in your life. And then here gets us to the third layer, which is motivation. I think this is the most neglected one. This is a layer where we start to deal with the heart. So we look beyond the decision. Is it a good or bad decision? And we even look beyond the circumstances, and we begin to explore the reasons that lead to the decision. So we've asked what, where, and when, and we need to make sure we answer why. And this is what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at chapter 6. He starts with the actions of giving and praying and fasting. And then he actually drills down into different occasions, giving in synagogues, praying on street corners, fasting with disfigured faces. Here he's showing them these are real lives, real actions, real people, but he doesn't stop there because his goal is not simply to see a change in behavior, that he's got a more transformational goal. And so to accomplish this, he focuses on the motivation. What is their motivation for giving? Well, verse 4, some give, why? Because they love the applause of men. So Jesus redirects that motivation. Instead, give, why? Because your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. What's their motivation for praying? Chapter 6, well, some pray to be seen by people. This is why they act this way in these places. Instead, pray because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's their motivation for fasting? Some fast because they want people to notice their piety when they should fast because, again, your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Later in chapter 6, Jesus gives an action. Verse 25, he says, don't worry. And then notice what he does. He gives occasions when we might worry. When might you worry? Well, when you're hungry and don't have any food. Or when when your clothing is worn out and winter's coming and you don't know how you're going to care for yourself. But then he doesn't stop there. He gives the motivation for not worrying. He says, verse 32, you need to trust that your father will care for you. Verse 33, that he will provide everything you need. And so by, by drilling down all the way to the third layer, all the way to motivation, Jesus is connecting their outward actions to their internal passions. And he's showing this. He's showing them how what they love motivates what they do. When they love their father, when they desire their father's approval above everything else, then they will see a change in their actions. A change in action without a change in motivation leads to one of two things. It either leads to frustrated failure because we don't really change or self-righteous success, which may be even more dangerous. 
but it never leads us to deeper affection for Christ. So Jesus here is warning about hypocrisy, where we do right actions, we change our actions, but we're doing it with wrong motivations. And so I say this sort of cautiously, but if your preaching and teaching calls for changed action without connecting it to the proper motivation, then what it does is it encourages hypocrisy in your people. Why do people sin, brothers, sisters? They always and only sin for one reason. In that moment of sin, they love their sin more than they love Jesus. And so a failure to obey in our actions always flows from a failure to adore Jesus. And so if we demand a change in action without uncovering the motivation behind that action, we're like doctors prescribing cough medicine for lung cancer. There may be a moment or two of relief, it's temporary, and they'll never know true healing. So Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, the action, keeping his commands, flows from the motivation of loving him. And so if we want people's actions to flow, to change from sinful to godly, we've got to help them grow in their love for Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, that's by showing them Christ, right? Showing them what Christ has done for them and the grace that comes only through him. So I want to end with an illustration from the Lord of the Rings because it's the Lord of the Rings. Do you need a reason ever? Does anyone else have to make sure they don't use too many Lord of the Rings illustrations? Are you on like a Lord of the Rings pitch count? I might be. So after the major battle outside the walls of Minas Tirith, a hobbit, a prince, and a princess all lie dying inside the city. And so the word goes out to Aragorn. Aragorn is the messianic type king. And it says, it calls for him. Why? Because there's this ancient prophecy. When the true king comes, he will have healing in his hands. And so when he comes into the house of healing, he asks for a certain plant. It's called, in sort of the common speech, king's foil. I don't know Elvish, so I'm not going to attempt it. King's foil. So when he asks for it, there's a sort of this funny interchange in the book because he asks for it and the healers are surprised. Why would he want this? And in their minds, the only value this plant has is that it's got, when it's crushed, it's got a pleasing aroma. But basically, there's like, what good is a nice smell when people are dying? But as the story goes, in the hands of the true king, this plant has the power to restore health and bring the wounded back from the point of death. So used incorrectly, it only masks the sin of death, but used in the way the king uses, it brings life. Brothers, this is why we use the word like Jesus uses it. It's why we proclaim Christ and apply the gospel to the lives and hearts of our listeners. Other preaching may be attractive, it may be pleasant, but Christ-centered preaching brings the dead back to life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, for the beauty and glory of what you have given us. Thank you that it shows us Jesus, and in showing us Jesus, it helps us love Jesus more. I pray that you'll help us to be faithful teachers and preachers of your word, that we will point our people week in and week out to Jesus. We'll do it in all the ways that we see it in Scripture, that you'll help us develop an, an instinct for seeing Jesus and a joy in sharing him. I pray that you help us to have wisdom and do the hard work of connecting it to the lives of those listening, going all the way deep down into motivations. Lord, we need your help with that. We need your grace. But we pray that you will allow us the joy of seeing you bring dead men and dead women to life through the teaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.